Welcome to the Helping Families Be Happy podcast, where we explore the often messy world of family, love, and relationships. I am your host for this podcast, Dr. Carla Marie Manley, a practicing clinical psychologist, wellness advocate, and author based in Sonoma County, California. I've teamed up with Familius Publishing to bring you nourishing real-life information about love, family, relationships, and life. Now I am thrilled to introduce today's guest, Kira Bender, who will be talking with us about her work as a pediatric occupational therapist. Welcome to the podcast, Kira. Hi, Dr. Carla. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy. So for those who don't know what an occupational therapist might do, we'll dive into that after me asking you, what makes you, you? Oh, such a big question to start with. Well, I am, like you said, I'm a pediatric occupational therapist, and I'm also a mom of a four-year-old child. Those are the two things that probably take up the most of my time and my brain space at the moment. But yeah, I've been a child therapist since before I was a parent. And I think of the two as informing each other all of the time. So I OT the way I parent, the way I OT. And I have been so glad to be able to incorporate parent coaching and really whole family services into my practice through the occupational therapy lens. Just beautiful, which takes us straight to what is occupational therapy, especially pediatric occupational therapy. Yeah. Occupational therapy can be so many different things. And it's almost like the deeper I get into my practice, the harder it is to really describe what it is that I do day to day. But I can speak to it in terms of my practice and the way that I work with clients and families. So I work as an outpatient occupational therapist right now, which means that I see children in our clinic. I'm based in Los Angeles and I work for an organization called Center for Connection, which is led by the amazing, powerful work of Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, who some of your your followers and your audience might be familiar with her work. So the way that I OT, the way that I practice occupational therapy at this moment is really from a connection-based, child-led, family-centered approach, which means that I start by truly getting to know what who a child is, what their family's goals are for the child, what the child's goals are for themselves, and help to build their confidence, build their skills, build their abilities, accommodate for challenges that they might have in order for them to do the things that they want and need to do in life. So for a child, the most important occupations, those occupational therapists use this word not to mean a job, an occupation that we think of as adults, but all of the things that you want or need to do throughout your life. So take care of your body, getting dressed, feeding yourself, Playing is really the most important occupation of a child. Mm. Being a student, being a family member, all of those things are part of what I am trying to enable a child to be able to do. So my practice is very much centered around what's known as neurodiversity affirming practice. Most of the clients that I work with are neurodivergent in some way. Many of them are autistic. Some of them have ADHD. Many of them have sensory processing differences, 
And all of those things are important and valid. All of those ways of thinking, ways of processing information are important and valid for their family as a unit, their community as a whole, our world as a whole. And that is sort of where I see the future of child therapy practice going in this more accepting, more understanding direction. And really, so it sounds like when we are working with a child as a parent, as a teacher, as a grandparent, a key piece of what you do is to attune to the child, regardless of where they are on the spectrum of neurodiversity, to be able to, you know, one of my favorite words, and often we don't really slow down to realize how important it is, is the piece of attunement, which is really at the heart of attachment and attunement. So could you describe attunement to our listeners, what you mean when we're saying we're going to attune to the child's needs? Yeah. So I think that usually when we think of attunement, we're thinking of moment to moment, being able to visualize what's happening for your child, understand why it is this is happening, and helping to guide them through a particular moment. So many of the children that I work with in my practice struggle with self-regulation. And all children will struggle with Mm self-regulation as all children have developing social capacities, developing everything, (laughs) developing nervous systems, developing brains. All children need to go through the process of learning to regulate themselves. The process through which children learn to regulate themselves is through a process called co-regulation. And this is very much incorporating that idea of attunement because co-regulation is the ability to regulate with another person. So we can't leave a child in distress and expect them to figure it out on their own. This sort of idea of self-soothing, we'll think about a child's not going to learn to self-soothe if you are helping them through these moments. But what we actually know about nervous system development at this moment in time is that co a child needs repeated exposure to co-regulation in order to learn that skill themselves. So it's big kind of words to describe the process of being with a child in the moment, seeing what they're feeling, using your body your breath, your voice, all of these things in order to help soothe them, help calm them, and help teach them how to do those things on their own. And I'm thinking of how we might use the example of what is not co-regulation in order to even explore co-regulation a bit more. So the child's having a temper tantrum and the parent screams at the child or the parent leaves the child, but certainly the one about screaming, that's the antithesis of co-regulation because the child is not being seen or attuned to. So if we want to co-regulate, we're going to do the opposite. We'll lean into the child, into the space they're in, be with them, breathe with them so they can see somebody who's doing healthy breathing or just sitting with them or maybe stroking them. What would you say as a tip to a parent who might have trouble getting a child who is just, you know, been there, right? 
any parents been there? We all where, have. You, where you just, the child's inconsolable. You might want to scream. You might want to leave the room, but you know you can't. And so what would you say to the parent who just says, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to co-regulate at times. I think that learning about how this process works physiologically can, my hope is that it can help for parents to be more empathetic to themselves. I think all parents have empathy for their children, but understanding that it's a two-way process. So observing your child in distress, understandably, is going to be distressing to a parent. This is how in the wild, (laughs) evolutionarily, we learn to keep our children safe is when they are upset, we get alerted. We look around for danger. We try to find out what's happening with them and we try to help them solve that problem. So understanding that this is not something wrong with me as a human being. This is not something to be ashamed of as a parent, being activated by your child's big feelings, understanding that this is something that happens to everyone, that this feeling of not being able to deal with and manage your child's emotion means that you are a good parent. So first of all, having empathy for yourself in those moments, understanding this is normal this is real, this feeling that I have in my, I keep gesturing to my chest, Mm -hmm. (laughs) this feeling that we get right here in our chest when our child is just inconsolable. Also to understand that it is a process, even if you're doing all the things right, which I'm doing air quotes for the podcast listeners, you, first of all, I don't think there's any way that any parent can do all of the things right any given time. That shouldn't ever be the goal for us as parents. Even if you're doing all the things right, sometimes this process of regulation takes time. Tantrums are normal. Meltdowns are normal, whether your child is typically developing or whether they are neurodivergent. It's normal for all children to go through these processes, accepting, understanding, having empathy, and then using your skills, I think is the best way for parents to be able to approach this. Such good information, that step of pausing, having empathy for the self, realizing it's normal, it's natural. We're not gonna, we're not gonna be perfect parents. We're not gonna be perfect grandparents, caregivers, teachers, any of that. So now what is step two? So now the parents with the child or the caregiver, the child, now they've had some empathy. Okay, it's okay for me to have big feelings too. I'm feeling really upset by my toddler's upsetness and my inability to console them. And especially when we have children who are neurodivergent, where the emotions may be bigger, may be much bigger. What is step two for the parent? Step two is figuring out how to use your body, use yourself in order to help to co-regulate with your child. So the first thing that I do both with my own child and with children in my practice, as I see (laughs) children having meltdowns a lot of days of the week, is I try to make myself as small as possible physically. So our body size and our body position is a way that we as adults are asserting power over children all day, whether we mean it or not. We are physically larger than them. We stand above them. And this is 
can be perceived as a threat to an activated nervous system. So I'm going to sit down on the floor if I can next to a child who might already be on the floor. (laughs) I'm going to get down. I'm going to get as small as I can. I'm going to think about how close I am to the child. And this is going to be different for different children. Different children have different preferences. So I'm going to be observing their reaction and I'm going to be adjusting to what I'm doing. So that goes back to that idea of attunement, right? So I'm watching them. I'm seeing, do they want me close by? Do they want to be held? Do they want me in the room, but have a little bit of space and distance? I'm not leaving them. I'm not ignoring them, but I'm seeing what works for my child or the child that I'm working with in that moment. The next thing is to think about, (laughs) consider using your voice as a regulation tool. In this moment, if you have this screaming, crying, inconsolable child, the words you're saying are not important. And I see a lot of this conventional parenting advice on social media and things like that of these scripts that is meant to give parents the tools to use in the moments. And in this particular moment, I really think the words don't matter. At all. I agree. It's yeah. the tone, the, the tone, it's the, tone, yes, the it's body, the speed, it's the rhythm. All of these things. I mean, think about when you have a baby infant, right? We're not assuming that that infant can understand what we're saying, especially when they're crying. But we're going to use our voice. We're going to say, Mama's here. We're going to, we might do a little, we'll give them a little lullaby or something like that. So, again, you're sort of testing to see what works for your child in that moment, what they're responding to. Some children won't want any words, any, they might not be in the state that that is going to be calming or regulating to them in that moment. In that case, you're just going to wait and you're just going to be with them. You might use your breath or your breathing to, to just, you can show empathy in your face. You can show empathy in your breath. You can show empathy in your tone of voice, all of these things to show them I am there with you. I know this is real. I know what you're feeling. It's not necessarily about you're feeling mad because they're going to say, no, I'm not feeling mad. (laughs) We've all made that mistake. And you're right. That's what social media, you know, they say, mirror that you tell the child and the child will say no, even if they are mad, they will offer. So I really agree with you that Art of attunement, which we have to, to, to be fair, it takes a lot of effort. It's a lot more effort than shutting the door on your kid, putting them in time out, or using the same approach if you have three kids for every kid. Truth is, mm-hmm. attunement means every child is going to need something different. And that will change depending upon the situation, the day. And so why would we as busy parents, as busy caregivers, why would we want to go to so much trouble to tune in to each child as an somewhat a rhetorical question, but it's a good question. Why would we want to bother when we could just put them in time out and ignore them? Yeah. I mean, the it makes me think of all parents and grandparents of today, how we were raised, right? And... <laughs> 
we all mostly turned out to be functional humans, functional adults, but is how we want our children to relate to us is that the behavioral techniques, the rewards, the punishments, the asserting dominance, the emphasis on rule following, the emphasis on respect, respecting your elders, all of these things. Some of it is effective. I'm not going to say it's not effective, but it is fear-based, punishment-based strategies. And do we want as parents to be feared by our children? Do we want for them, do we want for that to be our relationship with them? Or do we want for them to understand that we are on the same team here? (laughs) I am here for you. I am not afraid of your big feelings. I, I know that your body is telling you that you're in danger right now, but I'm here. I'm calm. I'm sitting on the floor with you and I am showing you we're not in danger. I'm not going anywhere. That's the message that I want for my child to be getting from me as a parent. So that's why I choose to parent in this way. Absolutely. I'm 100% on board. And I also think another huge payoff is that if we do this early in life, and even if we're late to the game and we're learning this when our kids are in grade school or middle school or even high school, we are giving the, by that investment, we are teaching them to be able to self-soothe, to be able to regulate their emotions, to understand their emotions. And so then we are raising not just chronologically older kids, but kids who are more mature and emotionally mature and more competent and thus less likely to have issues in young adulthood and later adulthood. Would you agree? Yeah. And how often do we see these these viral videos online, right, of fully grown adults losing it on mm-hmm. an airplane or at a Starbucks or <laughs> in a grocery store for for no reason, right? This is what we are tr- trying to teach these skills from a young age so that our children are able to regulate, be flexible when they are older when they're out there in the world when they don't have you as a partner there with you. Absolutely. Skills for a lifetime then. So this investment early on gives that child and then they'll be able to be terrific parents themselves because they'll have it under the belt. They'll, They'll get it. So I could talk to you about attunement for hours on end. So let's just switch for a moment to Familius who is the publisher who hosts the podcast and their values and and they do beautiful children's books, just amazing children's books. And their habits of healthy families work together, play together, learn together, read together. And I understand you use children's books in maybe your personal life, certainly, and but also in your practice. I do, absolutely. And through a sort of unique arm of my business, I've been doing more public speaking opportunities. And I had the incredible opportunity this past year to present to the Los Angeles Public Library, their entire team of children's librarians, because I am so passionate about this idea of using books in parenting, in my practice, using books as learning tools for children to build social emotional skills from a young age. So I 
had this conversation with the librarians and I thought it would just be perfect to bring to the familiar audience as well. But one of the ways that I suggest that parents use books in order to build these social emotional skills in young children is not only, I think there's a lot of popularity around books about feelings, books about experiences, tough things, all of these things. I think that that angle is pretty obvious to a lot of parents these days. Another angle that I want to present is using books to teach children about how their bodies work as a whole from a young age. We don't Uh necessarily think of that as an important point in this social emotional skill development, but learning what is happening inside your body is a really important tool for children to be able to tune into the body cues and respond before exploding. (laughs) So we want even very young children can start to identify my heart is beating fast. My face is getting hot. My breathing is going faster or shallower. And those are all clues that I'm going to need to use my strategies, ask for help from an adult, take a break, do something else. And children aren't going to be able to identify those things if they don't know what breathing is, what the heart does, what its job is. All of those things are really important lessons that can be guided by books at child's developmentally appropriate level. Absolutely. And when we learn naturally as young children, then the heart isn't just, and the the liver and the stomach, they're not just objects in a diagram. We feel them. We know where they're placed in the body. And we can teach children through storybooks, picture books, board books to really love learning and love learning about what truly makes them tick and makes the world work. So what are some of your favorite ways to use books in your personal life with your four-year-old? Um, well, one unconventional way to use books is in those moments of really big feelings, big emotions to pull in a book as a co-regulation strategy. I started to do this naturally when my son was a little bit younger and I was feeling myself get activated and I didn't know what to say. I couldn't reach for those words to be able to co-regulate with him. So I started just reaching for whatever was the closest book to us. So books give us that ability to use our words. A lot of children's books are written in rhythmic or Mm -hmm. rhyming patterns. All of those things are intuitively, naturally calming to the nervous system. So bringing in a book (laughs) in a moment of a meltdown might seem kind of out there, but it's a strategy that I have found works over and over. And it's more accessible for parents when, again, you're getting activated. You're, it's fine. You're, it's difficult to find the words in the moment. Just use the words on the page. Um, finding a familiar book, one that your child knows and loves, can fill in the blanks and repeat. And you're not necessarily looking for them to be looking over your shoulder or listening actively or participating, but just taking in the rhythm, the rhyme the cadence, that familiar routine and the words is going to help 
them and help you in that moment. What a great strategy. I'm curious how your son responds. I can see picking up a book like I Love You Forever, one of my, you know, or one of the many familiar books where you pick up the book and you just start reading it. How did, what does your son do? Well, depends on his (laughs) level of access in the moment, right? But what I have seen both from him and I run a group for preschoolers and I just had this experience just yesterday with this little three-year-old girl who is really has limited communication and is just learning to be out there in the world. She's a new little one to me. And she was just having such a hard time yesterday. And I just pulled out this book. It was a short little rhyming storybook. It was even like maybe six pages, right? I was wishing it was longer, but I kept flipping back to the start and I was just reading it and reading it and reading it. And the first two read-throughs, she kind of pushed it away. She was kind of telling me, I'm not ready for this. And I sort of paused and then I read it again. And eventually she kind of climbed over closer to me. She looked on, she started to look at the pages. She started to calm down. And eventually we were engaged in reading together. And it doesn't always happen that beautifully every single time, but it's just something that naturally kids are drawn to books. They're drawn to the beautiful illustrations. They're drawn to the stories, whether they're fully grasping and understanding them or not. Absolutely. And I can see as a parent, caregiver, and educator, that even you reading that book, if it's a distressing moment, it's calming you down, your parasympathetic nervous system's coming on board, and the child's going to feel that shift. They might not know what's happening, but they're going to feel that shift in your energy as well. So what a great tip for all of the parents, grandparents, caregivers, educators out there. Wow. I love that just to use. We can all have some children's books with us in a handbag (laughs) briefcase somewhere. I always do. Ah, good, good. Such a great tip. I hadn't thought of using them in that capacity. It's a tremendous tip. Thank you, Kara. Kara, do you have any other tips as we wind down that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Sure. Another way that I love to use books as a tool to teach social emotional skills and development is what I call storybook detective. So this is outside of those meltdown moments. This is when a child is regulated and ready to be there with you is to look at the picture and ask your child questions. And your child might be too young to be able to answer these questions just yet, or they might not have the ability, but you're going to ask them, how do you think this character is feeling? Why are they feeling that way? Trying to demonstrate the process of looking for clues in this person's face, in their body, thinking about what happened in the story before to try to understand, to build empathy for others. I have been so amazed as a parent of watching my own child relate to characters and stories. They really just it's incredible how they come alive for a young person. So using them as a tool in this way, not only reading the words on the page, but showing them how to engage deeper with a story, understand what's happening behind the scenes, understand what this character is really experiencing 
and what can we learn from that, I think is a really good lesson. Absolutely. It sounds like that's mentalization right there, teaching the child mentalization in another way. What a great tip. Just diving in and letting the child explore what they might be feeling through the character or maybe what the character's feeling. Anything else, Kira? You know what? I just want to say thank you, Dr. Carla, for this conversation. I have really enjoyed these are lessons that I really think that will help children of all ages. We're talking mostly about the preschool age, toddler age children, but I think that there is so many lessons that can be learned from books and so many lessons that parents as well can teach their children using books as support. Absolutely. I just love how you bring it down to the basic of it almost feels to me when in doubt, it's okay to grab a book and read to a child or sing to the child with a book. It's okay. You're being present. You're being attuned, you know, as you're watching the child and you're letting them join you. If And what a great, what a gift. So Kira, where can our listeners find you? Well, you can find me online on Instagram. My handle is herewegrow.co which is also my website if you want to get in touch. Yeah, I would love to connect with your listeners in whatever way. Thank you so much. And this is Kira, K-I-R-A Bender, B-E-N-D-E-R. And it's Here We Grow. Thank you so much, Kira. It's been such a delight. Thank you. As we conclude today's podcast, I'd like to thank Familius Publishing for their support in bringing this podcast to your ears and your heart. We'd be thrilled if you'd subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes and social media. If you'd like more wonderful Familius content, be sure to visit us at Familius.com, where you will find our Habit Hub blog, as well as a spectacular selection of books for families. One step at a time, we can and will make the world a happier place. Thanks for sharing your time with me, Dr. Carla Marie Manley. It's been a joy and a true pleasure. Be well and shine, shine, shine as only you can do.